Well, good afternoon, everyone, and thank you very much for joining us today. For the first time in a while, today I am joined in person by our Director of Public Health and the Minister of Health for Health and Social Care. This is the first time I have appeared at these briefings since we ended our circuit break lockdown. I hope you have all enjoyed the ability to go about your business and see friends and family. I know I have. I hope you've seen how the media and people from way beyond our shores have been talking about our island. We do, though, have to be careful to not appear to be arrogant about our situation. There are so many people globally still struggling with the impact of COVID. What I found moving was people commenting that seeing our island gave them hope that there were better times ahead for them too. But most importantly, the coverage has rightly focused on the fact that it was you, the Great Manx public, who made the right decisions and got us to where we are today. Before I share some updates with you, I will invite the Minister for Health and Social Care to update us on the most recent testing numbers. David. Thank you, Chief Minister. The total number of tests undertaken now stands at 29,718. The total tests concluded are 29,697, which means we are awaiting 21 results. In the last 24 hours, no new cases have been identified, meaning our total case count remains at 436. The total number of active cases is four, with one in hospital. Thank you, Chief Minister. Thank you very much, David. Now that we've got through our circuit break, I would like to talk to you about the future. Now, I won't have all the answers to all of your questions, but I want to tell you how the Council of Ministers sees the path ahead. The first thing is to say is that our approach will continue to be carefully considered. We are not about to embark on a plan that leads to unnecessary risk for our island. We have all worked too hard to get to where we are, and we are certainly not going to jeopardise that. There is significant uncertainty around us. While the situation in the United Kingdom is getting steadily better, the infection rates are still extremely high. But at the same time, there is cause for optimism. The UK vaccination programme is going well. The NHS has delivered an impressive operation. Of course, there is also uncertainty around variants and how they might impact on the vaccines available. And I will ask Dr Ewart to share the latest information with us on that in just a minute. As I've said on a number of occasions, we only want to have measures in place for as long as they are necessary. The last remaining measure is, of course, the restrictions around our borders. And forefront in my mind is the need for families who may have one foot either side of the Irish Sea to be able to see each other. We do want to enable this, but we are not there yet. There is still some way to go before we can make bold changes to our borders. As soon as we judge that we can do so without risk to our island, then we will do so. We are working to finalise our long-term approach. We still have some way to go on this yet. Once it is ready, we will share it with you. Our aim is to do this before the end of the month. Just to manage everyone's expectations, it will not give precise dates on when we will make precise changes. But it should give you a clear path of the view of the path ahead and the milestones on that path. There are two things that we are watching closely and will form the basis of our decision making. As always, the infection rate in the United Kingdom 
and to an extent beyond, will be key. This is how we measure the threat to our community. As more people there are vaccinated, we would hope that this rate will start to drop significantly. But the new factor now is our own vaccination programme. As we vaccinate people, starting of course with our most vulnerable, the risk to us if COVID does arrive on our island reduces. And when I talk about the risk, I mean the risk to our people getting seriously sick and the risk of our health service being overwhelmed. Let's not forget that winter is always a challenging time for our hospitals. At the moment, it would not take many people hospitalised with COVID to push them to the edge. And we must protect our NHS so that there is, for us, that's what we have to do. So we need to see our most vulnerable vaccinated and the infection rate in the United Kingdom much lower. And a change in the weather would also help. These things will reduce the risk. And when we judge that the risk is manageable, we can make changes. So, of course, everyone would like to know when this will be. That is the big question and impossible to answer with much certainty, not least when so many factors are beyond our control. So I can't make you promises, but I can share some hopes. It does feel that when we have vaccinated all of what is known as the nine priority groups in phase one, so those who are over 50 and all those with underlying health conditions that put them at higher risk, this will be a key milestone. We hope to be able to have done this by the end of May. If we can do this, and if the UK infection rate decreases significantly, then could maybe the month we see change? Possibly. Might we be able to make some changes before May? Maybe. But that moment where we have vaccinated our priority groups does feel like the moment when we can consider taking bolder steps. But I need to be clear, this is aspirational. There are so many external factors that we do not control, not least the supply of vaccines. And of course, with this virus, the only thing that is certain is that nothing is certain. This might be a good time for me to pause and invite our Director of Public Health to update us on another thing that I know is causing concern, notably variants and what they mean for our vaccines. Dr Ewart. Thank you, Chief Minister. As Chief Minister mentioned, although rates remain high across in the UK, they are coming down. And there was breaking news on the BBC as I was coming into this press briefing saying that R, the R number, is now believed to be under one, which means that things are beginning to come under control as a result of the lockdown. That actually links into the variants because what has happened across in the UK is that the new UK variant, which we now refer to as the Kent variant, has become the predominant strain. So most cases in the UK now, or certainly in England, are the Kent variant. Now, the concerns about the Kent variant were its increased transmissibility, which it certainly does show. But the good news is that even with that increased transmissibility, the lockdown measures are bringing the whole thing back under control, even that transmission that's due to the Kent variant. So that's encouraging news. We have had two more cases of the Kent variant come on island. Um, we had the genomic sequencing results back earlier in the week, and these included results for the last week in January, and two travel-related cases were Kent variant. Those are in self-isolation, and there is no onwards transmission, 
But once again, I'll just take that to give me an opportunity to remind everybody just how important it is to observe self-isolation if you have a direction notice. So I'll come on now to where we are in terms of the new variants and vaccine issues. Are the vaccines still um, active against those variants? The current vaccines do seem to be fully protective um, against the Kent variant. However, there is a slight nuance to that, which is recently some differences in the Kent variant have been observed. This is where I have to get a bit technical. A variant is a form of the mutation, a form of the virus, which may contain quite a number of mutations. And in the case of the Kent variant, it contains about 23 mutations that make it different from the preceding variants that were common in the UK. Date that hasn't included any mutation that changes the nature of the spike protein that the virus makes or causes to be made, and that is the main target for the vaccines. Now, the South African variant contains a specific mutation called E484K, which does change the spike protein and looks as if it makes the vaccines slightly less effective. Now, what is a matter of concern in the UK at the minute is that some samples of Kent variant do contain that E484K mutation. They're still overall Kent variants because most of the 23 mutations are the same, but they do contain one change which is this E484K. And that finding has been linked to some clusters in various geographical areas across, notably in Bristol and the southwest and the northwest. So what is happening around that across is some very active, what they refer to as surge testing, where they go out and go door to door, literally, and put out lots of adverts on social media and so on, asking people in defined postcodes to come forward and get a test, even if they have no symptoms. And the idea of that is to identify cases and then do the sequencing and identify whether they have wider spread of the Kent variant with this particular mutation and try to shut it off that way. You'll also know that the UK has changed, well, the four nations of the UK have changed their border policy regarding incoming travellers, um, bringing in hotel quarantine and enhanced testing. And again, that is try to, trying to stop the South African variant coming onto the British Isles. So we have to be vigilant too, because obviously we're at the, the end of the kind of travel chain there. People coming into the UK who want to make their way to the Isle of Man, but have come from one of the countries designated as risk areas for one of the variants of concern, will have to self-isolate in line with UK requirements before they can travel onwards to the Isle of Man. And once they get here, they'll have to follow our regulations for self-isolation and testing as well. And it really is vitally important that we try and as far as possible to keep these mutations out of the island so that our vaccination programme will give us all protection against 
variants that are currently circulating. Clearly, to an extent, that's only a holding position. And ultimately, there will have to be changes to the vaccines to tweak them and make them effective against both the E484K mutation and indeed other mutations and variants as they come along. But for the moment, the key focus is to stop that variant getting into the British Isles, including ourselves. Thank you, Chief Minister. OK, thank you, Dr um, Hewitt, and um, thank you for, for that speech. You've robbed some of my next speech, but I think it's important enough to reiterate again on the question of variants. So just before I hand back to the Health Minister for an update on the vaccination programme, I would like to touch on the question of the UK's own border restrictions that come into force from Monday. We have been working closely with the United Kingdom to fully understand the impact on our island and on, on our residents. With my colleagues from Guernsey and Jersey, I spoke to UK ministers yesterday. The requirement for hotel-based quarantine in the UK will apply to those travelling from those countries, currently 33, on the UK's red list. If someone is coming to the Isle of Man via the UK from one of these countries, as Dr Ewart has clearly already said, they will need to complete and pay the hotel quarantine before they are allowed to travel onwards to us. Even if they are just transiting Heathrow, and then of course they will need to complete quarantine when they arrive here. There is, this is only, though, for those countries that are red-listed. So there is no change for people who travel from the Isle of Man to the United Kingdom. But please remember, we continue to strongly urge you not to travel unless it is essential. So back to our vaccination programme. Let me ask the Minister to give us an update. David. Thank you, Chief Minister. The vaccination programme continues to roll out at a pace. We have now delivered first doses to over 11% of our population and 4% of our population have been completed entirely having received the second dose. In terms of the vaccination programme, letters to the over 75s have recently been going out and we have now also started sending out letters to those over the age of 70, those who are extremely clinically vulnerable and their carers. I know that several people have asked how the clinically vulnerable are decided this is done via their primary care records, which we are using as the base for the vaccination programme, with the primary care practices providing us with a list of those extremely clinically vulnerable individuals. This round of vaccination also includes their carers, who will receive a separate letter inviting them to register for their vaccinations. The first Northern Hub vaccine pop-up clinic for those in the north of the island that due to physical or medical reasons are unable to travel will be taking place this weekend, weather dependent, in Ramsey and there are 210 people booked in to receive their vaccines this weekend. The clinic is being run by the same nurses operating the airport hub. For those of you who are booked in, there is no need to turn up too early. You will be seen at your allotted time and it does not matter if you arrive close to your slot or are a little late. If you are one of the 210 booked in, you will be vaccinated. The Chester Street Hub will open on Monday and operate in the same way as the airport hub. This will replace the Newlands site up at Nobles Hospital, which will be decommissioned as a vaccine hub. For those who have previously been booked to go to Newlands, they have been rebooked to have their vaccines at Chester Street. 
Can I thank all those who have been involved in the development of the Chester Street Hub. You have turned round a large logistical project in super quick time and it has delivered a modern, spacious clinical space within easy access of bus routes, with ample parking nearby and easy access. Thank you to all of you who've been involved in that project. I also want to update you on our plans for vaccinating those in our community who lack the capacity to make their own decisions. Being vaccinated is a free choice. It is not compulsory. So gaining the patient's informed consent is an important step before vaccines go into anyone's arm. Where someone lacks the mental capacity to give that informed consent, they can still be vaccinated if a healthcare professional confirms that having a jab is in the person's best interest. In other words, a decision is made for an individual by someone else empowered to do so because it is in their best interests. Responsibility for making a best interest decision lies with the GPs. GPs know their patients and have the clinical and ethical training and experience to make this decision. We have a wide range of registered healthcare professionals in our vaccination workforce, but while some have received capacity training as a core part of their job, others have not. So to ensure consistency, all best interest decisions will be made by GPs. So anyone who does not have capacity to sign the consent form themselves will need to see their GP before they are registered for a vaccine. With the best interest decision in place, the person can be ready to attend when the appointment is given, avoiding any delay. So just to recap, best interest decisions cannot be made on the day at the vaccination hubs. They need to be organised with the GP. So I'd ask anyone hearing this who cares for a loved one who lacks capacity to make contact with their GP if they haven't already done so. This brings me to another connected issue around the consent forms. There have been a number of instances where individuals without capacity have been brought along to the hubs by a relative who has offered to sign the consent forms on their behalf. It is not possible for that to happen. A relative cannot sign the form on someone else's behalf. If the person cannot sign their own consent, they'll need to go down the best interests decision route. I would urge any families concerned about this to make early contact with their primary care provider to discuss the issue. Thank you, Chief Minister. And thank you very much to David. And I'd like to add my thanks to that of David um, for the Department of Infrastructure and all the local companies that worked with them doing a wonderful job that they've done to get the new hub ready so quickly. It's really very impressive. And at the end of the briefing, you can see a short video of one of our wonderful healthcare professionals, Sam Neen, walking you through the Chester Street hub. And as always, a big thanks to all our health and care professionals and all their teams who've been operating the hubs, visiting residential homes and going out to some of our housebound people. I know I went round the hub at the airport and I was really impressed when I, when I toured it, just the dedication and the, the speed and professionalism of, of everything that I saw there. Now, it is great that over 75% of our two top priority team groups so those in residential care homes and their carers are over 80s and our frontline health staff have now had a first dose. 
and almost a third have now had their second. This is really important progress. Let's go to questions from the media now. And first I have is Tim Glover from Manx Radio. Good afternoon, Tim. Fast am I. Fast am I, Chief Minister. Uh, Steam Packet today reported a non-passenger-facing UK crew member has tested positive for COVID-19 and other colleagues, and including Manx workers now in self-isolation. As a question we've asked before, we've had concerned members of staff. There was an emergency question about vaccinations for the Steam Packet staff as key workers asked, I think, in the keys this week. Uh, we hear we're only as safe as the last person arriving on the island adhering to the rules, and rightly so, but does this not apply to island-based steam packet crew as well? Right, well, it, it's a good question, Tim. I, I was expecting it, and I can confirm that a UK-based crew member of the Isle of Man Steam Packet Company did receive a positive test result for COVID-19 whilst in the United Kingdom. Our contact tracing team has been working hand-in-glove with the steam packet company to identify close contacts all were offered and accepted tests and all are self-isolating with their households. Five of the seven tests have returned negative and the remaining two results are expected later today. But I think I should hand over to our Director of Public Health who has been closely involved in, in this case. Dr Hewitt. Thank you, Chief Minister. Yes, as Chief Minister has outlined, um, contact tracing has now been completed all of those concerned are in self-isolation and have either already tested negative or we are awaiting results later today. Those that have test ne tested negative, of course, have to complete the self-isolation because they could be incubating. But the good news is that they weren't at risk of being a transmitter of virus or infecting anybody else before they were identified and put into self-isolation. So there should be no more trains of transmission from that which is good news. Um, we're undertaking what we call incident management um, in partnership with the steam packet. And um, while we've been doing that by phone and email, we will actually be meeting with them on Monday to make sure we have all appropriate um, actions in place as regards the island-based crew and also the UK-based crew. And also it's an opportunity to review arrangements on board the ferry to make sure that all appropriate social distancing and other mitigations are in place and are being adhered to. Thank you, Chief Minister. Thank you very much, Dr Hewitt. And, and, and I share everyone's concerns, Tim, on that. And I have asked Dr Hewitt to um, review this on a regular basis. And if there's uh, a medical clinical need to change the current stance on our procedures, then, of course, we will going forward. And just to confirm, that includes vaccination of crew as well as under consideration if needed. If, if needed. It's, it's obviously, I'm not a medic. It's not something in, in, in my field that I excel at. And therefore, you know, I have um, a total trust in Dr Hewitt and, and, and her team and giving us the right advice on how we take this forward. And as you've already alluded to, Chief Minister, lots of publicity uh, in recent times for the Isle of Man with being free of COVID restrictions. We're hearing many self-catering accommodation providers are reporting an increase in demand for six-month rentals and a lot of from people who already have underlying health issues. Many UK buyers were hearing us snapping up properties. Is the island health, education and infrastructure ready for an increased population? And what comfort can you offer first-time buyers who uh, feel they're being squeezed ever more out of the property market? Well, I suppose if, if our property prices were plunging and nothing was selling, Tim, I'd be getting criticised for 
not growing our population. I think you've seen the latest figures which clearly show that sadly our death rate on the Isle of Man is higher than our, our birth rate by about three, four hundred people um, now. And we need to attract um, skilled workforce to the island to take up, to, to work over here, provide the jobs where we're short, pay taxes so that we can provide services for the, for the people off the island. We have an ageing population like most of the developed world and we need to plan for that. But equally, as you've quite rightly alluded to, we need to ensure that we have a housing policy that supports our locals getting on that ladder and that they're not priced out of the market. And I know that there is currently a review with the Department of Infrastructure, the Department for Enterprise and DEF with planning to see what can we do to help our young people, how can we enable them to get on that property ladder from a financial point of view and the sort of property that they need to, to, to get going on the island. So yeah, all um, concerns obviously with the borders closed at the moment, we're not going to see a significant increase. But I think once we lift those borders, if we've done our marketing right, because we are actively marketing the island to, to grow that skilled workforce, because as I say, we've seen a decrease recently uh, as a result of, of death rates being higher than birth rates. That's a problem we've got to solve. But it's better to have a, a problem where you've got people wanting to come here um, rather than not wanting to come here. Thank Thanks. you. Sorry, Tim. Thanks very much. Okay, next we move on to Helen McKenna from Isle of Man Newspapers. Good afternoon, Helen. Fast am I. Good afternoon, Chief Minister. My first question is about the steam packet. Is this the first time a member of the steam packet has contracted COVID that you're aware of? It is to me, but I'd better go on to Dr Ewart to see if she, she might have greater knowledge than me no, on this one. No, it's the first time to my knowledge as well. Okay, thank you. And my second question is, when will we find out where the Northern Hub will actually be? I know that the uh, temporary one is at the Ramsey Cottage Hospital this weekend, but when will we actually find out about the Northern Hub? Okay, well, I think I'll bring in our Minister for Health and Social Care, who's been working on this to, to give advice. But you are right, the first um, hub in, in the north will be at Ramsey Cottage Hospital. Yeah, the, the the hubs in the north, as I've explained before, Helen, are pop-up clinics. So it's not like the airport, it's not like Chester Street, which are the two primary hubs that those that can travel will go to. This, this is purely for those in the north of the island who do not have the ability to travel, be that for medical reasons, be that for, for other physical reasons that they can't travel very far. Um, they, they, for the time being, they are going to be at Ramsey Cottage Hospital. Um, there is no plan for any great infrastructure development to support this. It will be We have the clinical space at Ramsey Cottage Hospital and that will be what will be being utilised for the pop-up clinics. Okay, thank you. Thanks very much, Ellen. And I understand the concern of a small community about having hubs scattered around the island. As I've said before in these interviews, with our population, if we were in the United Kingdom, we'd have one hub and we'd have a much bigger population using that hub. Obviously, this is the Isle of Man. We do things differently here. And we are doing the, the hubs for people who cannot um, easily get themselves to the airport or, or, or into Douglas. So we're, we're trying to be as helpful as possible. But I know I was in the queue um, buying cakes in that excellent establishment in Peel Muffins and I was listening to um, some of the elderly um, people in the queue complaining that there wasn't a, a purpose-built 
um, hub in the West too. And I get their concern, but when we're, the numbers that we're looking at and the cost of building these hubs and our population, I, I think hopefully people can see we've done our very best to make it as easy as possible for um, people to, to go. And, and if they do compare an excellent service in the United Kingdom, then we have far more facilities for our vaccination than if we were all living in the adjacent aisle. But understand the, the question and, and the concern for some people. But thank you very much, Helen. OK, next we have Alex Bell from BBC Isle of Man. Good afternoon, Alex Fastamai. Good afternoon. Um, now, I understand that in the past the Steam Packet Company have actually asked for their crew members to be given priority in terms of jabs. Now, given that the company is A, government-owned and B, a piece of critical national infrastructure, why was this not granted? Right, well, that's news to me. I'll bring in Dr Ewart, unless, David, you've got something to add before... Yeah, just before we bring the Director of Public Health in, um, we have to remember from a strategic point of view, Alex, that having the vaccine doesn't mean people won't have to self-isolate. The evidence at the moment is the vaccine does not stop you contracting COVID. So people even who've had the vaccine can still contract it. It just doesn't mean they don't get seriously ill. And although the vaccine reduces transmission, um, according to the most recent data, it reduces, it doesn't remove the ability for, the, for COVID to transmit. So it doesn't help from a resilience point of view with the steam packet, because say in this case, the person had been vaccinated, they would still have had to self-isolate because there still would have been that risk, even although it would have been a lowered risk of them tra transmitting to others and their close contacts would have still been contacted to self-isolate as well, but I'll bring Director of Public Health in. Thank you, Ministers. Um, yes, I concur with everything the Minister of Health has just said. Um, when these vaccines were given emergency approval for use, it was on the basis of the preliminary data coming out of the randomised controlled trials, and the outcomes then available from those trials were limited to evidence about the reduction of symptomatic COVID infection and within that serious illness, requirement for hospital admission and death. Uh, there was nothing in that initial data that was enabling anybody to look at whether people got infected or did not get infected. So the JCVI priorities framework, which we follow here, was deliberately framed around those groups of patients who would be at highest risk for serious illness, hospitalisation and death should they become infected. Now, vaccine is in limited supply, so if you give a vial of vaccine to person A, person B has to go without it. So if you start saying we've got other groups who are at lower risk of serious illness, but actually we'd like to give them the vaccine, that means you're going to have to explain to the group of people who are at high risk of serious illness and who won't get it why that is. So you really need to be clear about the opportunity cost of diverting from the identified priority groups to other priority groups. If we think about the staff of the STEAM packet, if they happen to fall by virtue of age or underlying health condition within one of those groups, they will get it as that group is called. If they are otherwise younger, fitter people, their risk of developing symptomatic COVID and within that serious COVID is very much lower anyway. So that was the basis of the initial data that we had and the basis on which the uh, vaccines were approved. 
On the 2nd of February, The Lancet published a preprint from the Oxford AstraZeneca researchers, uh, which actually was looking at the dose interval and the reaction that you get in terms of protection and immunity if you have a longer dose interval between the two doses than a shorter one. So that was the primary purpose of that paper. And if you look at the abstract, that's all it talks about. It doesn't mention anything about transmissibility. However, within their data sets, the data on the UK trial participants, the UK people had been offered the chance to have a PCR swab every week, regardless of whether or not they developed symptoms. The other trial participants did not get that. They only got swabbed if they presented with symptoms. So for the UK patients, and that was about just under 9,000, there is evidence that suggests that fewer of them in the vaccinated group were getting a positive PCR, i.e. evidence that they were being infected, compared to the others. And after the first dose of vaccine, that reduction in PCR positivity looked to be about 67%. By the time you got out to the full two doses, it looks to be just under 50%. So that's very preliminary. The preprint hasn't been peer-reviewed, and it only applies to AstraZeneca. We've got no data about transmission or infection for Pfizer as yet at all. So on the basis of that, it really is very early days to be concluding that we should be adding in an additional objective to the vaccine programme, which is to produce, re reduce infection and reduce transmission. That may come, but it's early days. And if, if I can just say, Alex, before you move on to your next question, I have obviously shared the concerns of the emergency question and members of the public, and I've asked Dr. Hewitt to keep this under review so that should there be a need to change our stance when the evidence presents itself, then we can move forward. And um, Dr. Hewitt has met with the um, steam packet representatives to look at their procedures, etc., and will continue to monitor the situation. Thank you. I do take the point about transmission there, but I think the concern is given that these crew members are some of the only folk who travel between the Isle of Man and the UK regularly now, they are the most likely people to catch COVID and therefore should they not be given protection from the virus's symptoms based on that risk? Yeah, and that's a, a medical question for um, the medical advice to, to give, give us on that. I think the person who had the um, COVID was not a forward-facing person. They were in isolation on the boat. But um, we have to go along with the advice of, of our, our medics and our public health and the evidence that's out there. And I, I think Dr. Hewitt's given quite a lengthy explanation. But should the data change or the evidence change, then I'm sure we will be happy to revisit the, the, the decision. Dr. Hewitt, anything you want to? Yes, indeed. Um, this is obviously a fast-changing situation, and as the data changes, our opinions and um, considerations change. Thank you. Is that you finished, Alex? Uh, no, if I may ask another question, yeah. actually, it's just concerning the vaccines which were administered. Um, looking at the vaccine dashboard yesterday, it appeared that there were very, very low numbers, as few as one doses of vaccine given out yesterday. Was this actually the case? And if so, why? Right. I think I'll bring in the health minister to answer that question. Yeah, more, more than happy to answer that for you, Alex. Um, this week, it's basically what we've said all along. It's down to vaccine availability. So, for instance, I think I mentioned at a previous 
briefing that we were expecting disruptions to our supply for the Pfizer vaccine because of the work that's been going on at Pfizer's factory in Belgium. Um, so we only had sufficient Pfizer to provide the second doses this week, and these were scheduled for Monday to Wednesday of the week. We were also originally due to run four days of vaccination through the airport, but it was going to be low numbers spread over four days. The decision was taken to use the vaccine for one of those days, plus what we had scheduled in to provide the pop-up in Ramsey over the weekend. And because this reduced the airport throughput to three days, the teams decided that actually they could deliver the same total because of their capacity over a single day. So we've delivered in a single day what otherwise would have been spread over three. So it's not slowed anything down. We are vaccinating to the supply that we have. I spoke about this, I think it was last week's press briefing, where I mentioned that we were expecting disruption to Pfizer, but that our, we would continue with the AstraZeneca, but people would therefore see an effect on the numbers being vaccinated. And that's exactly what's happened this week. Thanks very much, Alex. Now we move on to Sam Turton from Jeff. Good afternoon, Sam. Fastamai. Fastamai, Chief Minister. If we could uh, turn to Guernsey to start, please. Their President for Health and Social Care has today said that new scientific evidence has emerged in respect of how we can ensure that vaccines are administered as effectively as possible. Significantly, there is now clear evidence that by moving a longer gap between doses of AstraZeneca vaccine, the second dose is more effective, providing more protection to the individual. Guernsey has now moved up to a 10-week gap between first and second dose. What science are they seeing that we're not seeing? I think we'll ask David and then Dr Hewitt if, if necessary. Yeah, I'll come, in, I'll come in on that, Sam, and then I'll bring Director of Public Health in. We assess all of the data. Um, we, our clinical advisory group does look at this. They've been looking at all the papers coming in, um, and if they decide that we need to move, then we will move, but it is a clinical decision to be made. It's not a political decision. It needs to be based around the scientific evidence. Um, I know there are some that are that have put, um, particularly, I think it was the Director of um, Preventative Diseases at Imperial College um, that is at London that has actually come out and said we need to be cautious about the data it's based upon. Um, but I'll bring the Director of Public Health in. Thank you, Minister. Yes, this actually is um, another set of data that's come from the Lancet preprint that appeared on the 2nd of February that we talked about before. Um, I think there is a very long established um, body of evidence that leaving a longer vaccine interval rather than a shorter one between doses actually does improve the overall immune response. That's been well seen within the standard vaccine schedules that have been going for a long while. And that is why very often the JCVI will start with um, an addition to the vaccine schedule that follows the manufacturer's um, trial data, but they will then move out the spacing. So that was the overall principles and transferable evidence that underlay the JCVI recommendation to delay second dose vaccine up to 12 weeks, which has been in place for some time now across. In fact, it, it's always been part of that um, approach. Um, that has now been confirmed with respect specifically to the AstraZeneca vaccine by the Oxford team, and the data for all of that is contained in the preprint, which is there on the internet for anybody and everybody to see. So it's not really a surprise. 
Um, there are two reasons to think about changing from the manufacturer's um, vaccine schedule. And one of those is your levels of infection. If you are running at very high levels of infection, you clearly have a very strong imperative to get as many people with some protection as possible. So in those circumstances, you obviously want to go for getting as many first shots distributed out there as possible and then catching up with the second doses later. We don't have that driver at the minute, although, of course, we do have an ever-present threat that we might return to something like that, really with very little notice, as obviously has happened in Guernsey, although they're thankfully getting it back under control. Um, the other driver to going for a, a first shot maximum coverage is if you have issues or you think you're going to have issues about vaccine supply. Now, on top of those two drivers, we actually have the evidence that the immune response is likely better um, with a longer um, interval, and that just confirms what JCBI had interpreted all the way through. Uh, it's interesting to note that the WHO has now shifted their position. They initially um, were very cautious and were uncomfortable about moving beyond the data sets in the original Pfizer and AstraZeneca publications, but they have now also moved to um, an acceptance of this, this later interval. So it is something that, as I understand it, is back with our clinical group um, for reconsideration. So as with everything, it's something that is kept constantly under review. Thank you. And once we have an update, Sam, on the findings from our clinical review committee, we'll let you all know. Thank you. And just secondly, Chief Minister, this week uh, the Transport Secretary in the UK, Grant Shapps, told Radio 4 that COVID passports are on the way. Um, I think he means that they're going to be more your yellow fever type certificates. But what preparations is the Manx government making to ensure that our residents aren't cut out by this? Well, all our uh, residents, um, their GPs keep a record of the fact that they've had, whether they've had the vaccination or not and, and the dates, etc. So I'm sure if there's a need for a universal um, card, shall we say, to, to be developed or that will be developed by the UK, then we will take part in that. But obviously I think it's still too early to say. We still haven't got the data yet from all the vaccines to see whether they um, stop people spreading the, the vaccination. We, we've seen um, some reports I don't think it's been peer-reviewed, to use the technical phrase from Dr Ewart, that um, it definitely um, does significantly reduce the um, spread of the um, virus if you've had vaccination. But I think to give a more detailed answer, I'll let Dr Ewart. Yes, uh, thank you, Chief Minister. I think one of the key issues about vaccine and vaccine passports, if you've been vaccinated against yellow fever, you know you've got long-lasting resistance to infection. You get a certificate that lasts, I think, from memory for 10 years. We simply don't know that with the COVID vaccine. Firstly, as Chief Minister has just said, we don't know to what extent it's really going to protect from infection and then transmission and above that we don't know how long it will last and the other thing we don't know is not only how long will it last against the current variants but how will that change as and when new variants come along which they almost certainly will do because this is a virus that mutates so all of those things make it quite a different situation compared to the yellow fever system 
But as, if, as I'd say, I've said in all the other answers, Sam, if the data changes and it is decided that there will be a card for you to travel, because we've already heard of at least one airline um, saying that you're going to have to have the vaccine before you're going to be allowed to travel, and I think Saga have said something similar, then obviously we will be part of that. We won't let our residents um, be disadvantaged and this the minute we hear of um, that a scheme being brought in, then we will, of course, advise everyone on this. Right, now we have, last but not least, Rob Pritchard from 3FM. Good afternoon, Rob. Fast am I. Good afternoon, Chief Minister. First question, just with regards to the steam packet again. Um, of course, this is something we hope never happens, but what contingency plans are in place if we found ourselves in a situation where too many crew are having to either self-isolate or await testing, which would mean one or more of the vessels wouldn't be able to sail because, of course, the company is part of that critical infrastructure, particularly for the likes of supplies. Well, obviously, this has been looked at. I know um, DOI will have looked into it with, with the steam packet company. Um, I don't think we're going to need two boat sailing um, for, for some time yet, sadly. I don't think that we will need the Mananan to, to come online unless it's to cover the Ben McCree going into dry dock. And I know the steam packet company have been planning and looking at crewing, etc. Obviously, they need a much reduced um, crew at this moment in time because obviously the foot passengers and the cars etc are significantly reduced it's mainly for freight so I think they will have a, a surplus of, of people that they can call up on I know Dr Hewitt has had meetings with them I don't know if you've gone that far Dr Hewitt on the um, crewing uh, no but as, as you say I understand that those contingencies have been worked through with the DOI yeah so it, it has been thought about. Hopefully it, it won't happen. And as I say, with, with vaccines coming along, we're getting an awful lot closer now. And the fact that the um, there are crew based in the UK and the UK are doing an exceptionally good job with their vaccination rollout. We're on, on the same levels too. So hopefully it won't be that. That won't, will be a situation that won't happen, but it has been thought through. And I know the steam packet will have planned for this. Thank you. My second question is probably for the Health and Social Care Minister, I would say. Okay, David. Good afternoon, Rob. Good afternoon, Minister. Um, just with regards to the pop-up clinics, like you say, the first one is coming up in Ramsey on Saturday. Has any thought been given to doing uh, a pop-up clinic of the same sort of nature in, say, another part of the island to make it accessible to all when it's needed? For example, something of that sort in, say, the west of the island? There has been consideration given, but I go back to what I've said at previous briefings. We have to be very careful that every time we divide off our resource, we make ourselves less efficient with the vaccine programme. So we need to be very, very clear what the purpose of the clinics pop-ups that we do are. They are for people who cannot travel. So they are not just for residents who may live, say, for instance, in the west of the island or the north of the island because they don't wish to travel. It is purely limited to those who, for a medical purpose or a physical purpose, can't physically travel to the Douglas Hub or the airport hub. As the Chief Minister mentioned, um, I know people see on the TV screens, and I've addressed this before as well, church halls, um, etc., um, being opened up for vaccination hubs. To put that into perspective, I was in touch actually with an area in the UK where I used to live many years ago, um, and the local church hall that's being used as a vaccination hub is actually covering a population of 50,000 people. 
So although it's being seen on the news as a church hall, it's covering a large proportion of the population. And that's what the sort of throughput you need. You need to keep the throughput going to make these th this efficient. And with the logistical challenges around the vaccine as well, such as the, break the breaking up of the vaccine and the vials, um, we've got to be very, very careful that what we do is we don't dilute the programme that we're trying to roll out. So we will give consideration, and the department has been considering um, what we can do around pop-up clinics. We've also been engaging with primary care on this, but we will we will not do things unless we are absolutely certain that it is not going to slow our vaccination programme down. Thank you. Thanks very much, Rob, and thank you all for your questions today. And I think we'll we'll stop there for today. Now, despite pretty awful weather forecast for the weekend, I hope you can have a great Valentine's weekend and support our local businesses as much as you can. Please take care and be kind to one another. Thank you all very much for joining us today.